0: Hello, this is Alan Drake, your host for the first New Releases podcast of the month of August 2007. There'll be one more at the end of this month. It's such a beautiful day today. Remembering my mention of the Atlantic from the previous podcast, I thought I'd sit out here in my little sailboat a hundred or so feet from the coast and read to you the new releases for the end of July and mid-August 2007. Excuse me for a second while I find a safe seat. Ah, there you go. Again, as you can hear by the intro music, I brought my CD player with me, so you'll be hearing plenty of audio previews. This semi-monthly podcast brings you audio previews from our growing catalog. LibriVox provides free audiobooks, from texts in the public domain, including fiction, nonfiction, plays, short stories, poetry, and audiobooks in languages other than English. Let's get started. Here are some of the new fiction releases. Moon Metal by Garrett P. Service Peter Pan by J. M. Barry The Blue Fairy Book by Andrew Lang The Lair of the White Worm, by Bram Stoker, Bedtime Stories for Iden Christopher, Volume 1. Afterward by Edith Wharton, Our Mutual Friend, by Charles Dickens, The Colors of Space, by Marion Zimmer Bradley, The Voyages of Dr. Doolittle, by Hugh Lofting,
1: The Old Man in the Corner by Baroness Orzee was one of the earliest armchair detectives, popping up with so many others in the wake of the huge popularity of the Sherlock Holmes stories. The Old Man relates the details of recent sensational unsolved crimes as reported in the penny-dreadful newspapers, adding his own deductions as to the identity of the perpetrators to the continuing amusement of Polly, a lady journalist who frequents the same tea shop. Here is an excerpt from The York Mystery. The man in the corner looked quite cheerful that morning. He had had two glasses of milk and had even gone to the extravagance of an extra cheesecake. Polly knew that he was itching to talk police and murders, for he cast furtive glances at her from time to time, produced a bit of string, tied and untied it into scores of complicated knots, and finally, bringing out his pocketbook, he placed two or three photographs before her. "'Do you know who that is?' he asked, pointing to one of these. The girl looked at the face in the picture. It was that of a woman, not exactly pretty, but very gentle and childlike, with a strange, pathetic look in the large eyes, which was wonderfully appealing. That was Lady Arthur Skelmerton, he said, and in a flash there flitted before Polly's mind the weird and tragic history which had broken this loving woman's heart. Lady Arthur Skelmerton. That name recalled one of the most bewildering, most mysterious passages in the annals of undiscovered crimes. Yes, it was sad, wasn't it? he commented in answer to Polly's thoughts. Another case which, but for idiotic blunders on the part of the police, must have stood clear as daylight before the public and satisfied general anxiety. Would you object to my recapitulating its preliminary details? She said nothing, so he continued without waiting further for a reply. It all occurred during the York Racing Week, a time which brings to the quiet Cathedral City its quota of shady characters, who congregate wherever money and wits happen to fly away from their owners. Lord Arthur Skelmerton, a very well-known figure in London society and in racing circles, had rented one of the fine houses which overlooked the race-course. He had entered Peppercorn, by St. Armand, Notre Dame, for the great Ybor handicap. Peppercorn was the winner of the new market, and his chances for the Ybor were considered a practical certainty. If you have ever been to York, you will have noticed the fine houses, which have their drive and front entrances in the road called the Mount— and the gardens of which extend as far as the racecourse, commanding a lovely view over the entire track. It was one of these houses, called the Elms, which Lord Arthur Skelmerton had rented for the summer.
2: Greetings, LibriVox listeners. We have just finished a collaborative recording of the well-loved children's classic Peter Pan by J.M. Barrie. I'm going to let this book speak for itself, so here's a collection of excerpts from our readers. All children, except one, grow up. They soon know that they will grow up. And the women... Boy,
0: she said, courteously, why are you crying? Peter could be exceeding polite also.
3: Second to the right, and straight on till morning. That, Peter had told Wendy that
4: to a pirating we go and if we're parted by a shot and we're sure to meet below. It
5: was saying to die will be an awfully Except big you. adventure.
4: We've gone out to get the time. The way you got the time on the island was to find the crocodile and then she stay asked near Peter, him until the clock struck.
6: If you believe, he shouted to them, clap your hands, don't oh, let tink
4: die. Sir, it is Many all my clapped. doing. Proud and insolent youth said Hook. Prepare to meet thy doom. Dark and sinister man, Peter answered, Have a thee. When Margaret grows up, she will have a daughter,
7: who is to be Peter's mother in turn. And so it will go on, so long as children are gay
4: and innocent and heartless.
2: (laughs) Read by Meredith Hughes, Peter Eastman, Julian Jameson, Will Ching, Mark Smith, Neil Satterland, Catherine Eastman, Lizzie Oldfather, Becky Miller, Eric McKenzie, Lucy Burgoyne, Genevieve Tokes, Nathan Willard, Krithiga, Claire Gauget, and John Garvin.
5: Kenneth Graham is probably best known for his classic children's book, The Wind in the Willows. I'm pleased to announce the release of a solo project audiobook of one of his lesser-known works, Dream Days. Dream Days is a collection of semi-autobiographical stories that explore the realms of imagination. Join the narrator as he considers careers of a solitary wanderer, a sea captain, and a circus clown. Explore his own private castle with him and a young lady, and the misty background of a picture with him and his younger sister. Listen with him as a friend relates the story of The Reluctant Dragon, the best-known story in this collection. While these are technically children's stories, they are definitely written with adults in mind. The narrator's tongue is frequently found in his cheek, illustrating both the honest gravity of what he felt and imagined as a child, and his current adult perspective on those imaginings. Take this example from Section 6, A Saga of the Seas. In it, the narrator is imagining himself the captain of a sailing ship. He's just finished examining his cabin, finding it stocked with an impressive variety and amount of weaponry. Just as I was beginning on the lockers and the drawers, the watch reported icebergs on both bows and what was more to the point, coveys of polar bears on the icebergs. I grasped a rifle or two and hastened on deck. The spectacle was indeed magnificent. It generally is with icebergs on both bows, and these were exceptionally enormous icebergs. But I hadn't come there to paint academy pictures, so the captain's gig was in the water and manned, almost ere the boatswain's whistle had ceased sounding and we were pulling hard for the polar bears, myself and the rifles in the stern sheets. I have rarely enjoyed better shooting than I got during that afternoon's tramp over the icebergs. Perhaps I was in specially good form, perhaps the bears rose well. Anyhow, the bag was a portentous one. In later days, on reading of the growing scarcity of polar bears, my conscience has pricked me but that afternoon I experienced no compunction. Nevertheless, when the huge pile of skins had been hoisted on board and a stiff grog had been served out to the crew of the captain's gig, I ordered the schooner's head to be set due south, for icebergs were played out for the moment, and it was getting to be time for something more tropical. I hope you enjoy this audiobook. It's full of many such reminiscences of the dream
1: days of childhood. Far From the Madding Crowd is Thomas Hardy's fourth novel, published in 1874, and offers in ample measure the details of English rural life that Hardy so relished. Hardy's growing taste for tragedy is also evident in the novel. The book is often regarded as an early piece of feminist literature, since it features an independent woman with the courage to defy convention by running a farm herself. Although Bathsheba's passionate nature leads her into serious errors of judgment, Hardy endows her with sufficient resilience, intelligence, and good luck to overcome her youthful folly. The following excerpt from the LibriVox Collaborative Reading is taken from chapter twelve, which was read by Leanne Hallett.
3: Among these heavy yeomen, a feminine figure glided, the single one of her sex that the room contained. She was prettily and even daintily dressed. She moved between them as a chase between carts, was heard after them as a romance after sermons, was felt among them like a breeze among furnaces. It had required a little determination, far more than she had at first imagined, to take up a position here, for at her first entry the lumbering dialogues had ceased. Nearly every face had been turned towards her, and those that were already turned rigidly fixed there. Two or three only of the farmers were personally known to Bathsheba, and to these she had made her way. But if she was to be the practical woman she had intended to show herself, business must be carried on, introductions or none, and she ultimately acquired confidence enough to speak and reply boldly to men merely known to her by hearsay. Bathsheba, too, had her sample bags, and by degrees adopted the professional pour into the hand, holding up the grains in her narrow palm for inspection, in perfect Casterbridge manner. Something in the exact arch of her upper unbroken row of teeth, and in the keenly pointed corners of her red mouth, when, with parted lips, she somewhat defiantly turned up her face to argue a point with a tall man, suggested that there was potentially enough in that lithe slip of humanity for alarming exploits of sex, and daring enough to carry them out. But her eyes had a softness, invariably a softness, which, had they not been dark, would have seemed mistiness. As they were, it lowered an expression that might have been piercing to simple clearness. Strange to say of a woman in full bloom and vigor, she always allowed her interlocutors to finish their statements before rejoining with hers.
8: The Faith of Men By Jack London. The Faith of Men is a collection of eight short stories in which the author Jack London uses the wilderness of Alaska to highlight the strengths and the depravity of the human spirit in its gamble for health, wealth, and the affairs of the heart. Readers for this project include Brian Ackerman, Jessica. A.C. Snyder, Robert Scott, Mary Anderson, Zachary Brewster Geis, and Mr. M.L. Cohen. And now, for your listening pleasure, a sample of a reading by Brian Ackerman.
9: His hands were large, his hair wets pale yellow, but before they reached him, he turned with the pan and fled toward a cabin. He wore no hat, and the snow falling down his neck accounted for his haste. Bill and Kink ran after him, and came upon him in the cabin, kneeling by the stove and washing the pan of gravel in a tub of water. He was too deeply engaged to notice more than that somebody had entered the cabin. They stood at his shoulder and looked on. He imparted to the pan a deft circular motion, pausing once or twice to rake out the larger particles of gravel with his fingers. The water was muddy, and with the pan buried in it they could see nothing of its contents. Suddenly he lifted the pan clear and sent the water out of it with a flirt. A mass of yellow, like butter and churn, showed across the bottom. Hoochinoo Bill swallowed. Never in his life had he dreamed of so rich a test pan. "'Kind of thick, my friend,' he said huskily. "'How much might you reckon that all to be?' Hans Henderson did not look up as he replied, "'I tank fifty ounces.' "'You must be scrumptious rich, then, eh?' Still, Aunt Henderson kept his head down, absorbed in putting in the fine touches which wash out the last particles of dross, though he answered, "'I t'ank I been worth five hundred thousand dollars.' "'Gosh!' said Huchino Bill, and he said it reverently. "'Yes, Bill, gosh!' said Kink Mitchell, and they went out softly and closed the door.
8: "'Thank you, Brian. Very well done. That's one of eight stories comprising the faith of men.' by Jack London.
4: For 500 years, interstellar space travel was in sole possession of the mysterious Larry.
10: The Lari's spaceport didn't belong on Earth. Bart still had thought that a long time ago when he first saw it. He had been just a kid then, only
4: they possessed the warp drive and could travel faster than light. It was the Lhari's most tightly guarded secret. Two
11: more warp drive shifts through space had taken the swift wing far, far out to the rim of the known galaxy. And now the great crimson coal of Antares burned.
4: Human spies tried to discover their secret and failed. Some paid with their lives. The
1: shoulder, grateful beyond words. But fresh horror seized him as he remembered the horrible puddle of melted roto with briscoe somewhere in the residue.
4: Protoplasm Young Bart Steele would make the most daring and dangerous attempt ever to infiltrate the Lari, uncover the secret of warp drive, and free humans from Lari control forever.
1: His eyes exploded into pain. Automatically, his hands went up to shield them. Light, light he had never known such cruelly glowing light. Even through the lids, there was pain and red after-images.
5: Now listen, Bart. I'm going to take the bandages off your hands first. Sit down. Bart sat across the table from him, obediently sticking out his hands. Raynor Three said, shut your eyes. Impatiently, Bart flicked his lids open. In spite of the warning, his breath went out in a harsh, jolting gasp. His hands lay on the table before him, but they were not his hands.
4: LibriVox presents a multi-reader audiobook production of Marion Zimmer Bradley's science fiction classic, The Colors of Space. Available now only at LibriVox.org.
8: The Voyages of Dr. Doolittle by Hugh Lofting the Voyages of Dr. Doolittle was the second of Hugh Lofting's Dr. Doolittle books to be published, coming out in 1922. It is nearly four times longer than its predecessor, and the writing style is pitched at a more mature audience. The scope of the novel is vast. The Voyages of Dr. Doolittle by Hugh Lofting also won THE NEWBERRY MEDAL FOR 1923 Hugh Lofting's The Voyages of Dr. Dolittle* is read by various LibriVox volunteers, and here is both a lovely and enticing sample read for you by Miss Mary Anderson
12: I think your house is the most interesting house I was ever in, I said, as we set off in the direction of the town. "'May I come and see you again tomorrow?' "'Certainly,' said the doctor. "'Come any day you like. "'Tomorrow I'll show you the garden and my private zoo.' "'Oh, have you a zoo?' I asked. "'Yes,' said he. "'The larger animals are too big for the house, "'so I keep them in a zoo in the garden. "'It is not a very big collection, "'but it is interesting in its way.' "'It must be splendid,' I said.' To be able to talk all the languages of the different animals, do you think I could ever learn to do it? Oh, surely," said the doctor. "With practice, you have to be very patient, you know. You really ought to have Polynesia to start you. It was she who gave me my very first lessons. Who was Polynesia? I asked. Polynesia was a West African parrot I had. She isn't with me any more now," said the doctor sadly. Why? Is she dead? Oh, no, said the doctor. She is still living, I hope. But when we reached Africa, she seemed so glad to get back to her own country. She wept for joy. And when the time came for me to come back here, I had not the heart to take her away from that sunny land.
8: The Voyages of Dr. Doolittle by Hugh Lofting
0: And now on to some new nonfiction, including The Story of Mary MacLean by Mary MacLean, Stepping Heavenward by E. Prentice, 15,000 Useful Phrases by Greenville Kleiser, Offenses Against Oneself, Pederasty by James Bentham. Here are some samples.
8: The Story of Mary MacLean by Mary MacLean Mary MacLean has been described as a controversial Canadian-born American writer whose frank memoirs helped usher in the confessional style of autobiographical writing. At the age of 19, in 1902, MacLean published her first book, The Story of Mary MacLean. It sold 100,000 copies in the first month and was popular among young girls, but was strongly criticized by conservative readers and lightly ridiculed by H.L. Mencken. McLean, a very popular author for her time, scandalizing the populace with her shocking best-selling memoirs, she was considered wild and uncontrolled. And now, a brief taste of this work, brought to you by Kristen Hughes.
11: I have analyzed and analyzed and I have gotten down to some extremely fine points. Yet still, there are things upon my own horizon that go beyond me. There are feelings that rise and rush over me overwhelmingly. I am helpless, crushed, and defeated before them. It is as if they were written on the walls of my soul chamber in an unknown language. My soul goes blindly seeking, seeking, asking. Nothing answers. I cry out after some unknown thing with all the strength of my being. Every nerve and fiber in my young woman's body and my young woman's soul reaches and strains in anguished unrest. At times, as I hurry over my sand and barrenness, all my life's manifold passions culminate in utter rage and woe. Waves of intense, hopeless longing rush over me and envelop me round and round. My heart, my soul, my mind go wandering, wandering, plowing their way through darkness with never a ray of light, groping with helpless hands, asking, longing, wanting things, pursued by a demon of unrest. I shall go mad. I shall go mad, I say over and over to myself. But no, no one goes mad.
8: That's the story of Mary McLean by Mary McLean. Read by Kristen Hughes.
6: Mark Twain's Roughing It tells the story of a young Samuel Clemens who journeys out west with his brother. It tells how he became a newspaper writer and lecturer, how he got enmeshed in the Nevada mining fever, and what he saw and experienced in the Hawaiian Islands. It's a semi-autobiographical account of his life between 1861 and 67, and was written after his Innocents Abroad trip as a prequel to it. Here's a sample. By and by, I was smitten with the silver fever. Prospecting parties were leaving for the mountains every day, and discovering and taking possession of rich, silver-bearing loads and ledges of quartz. Plainly, this was the road to fortune." The great Gould and Curry mine was held at three or four hundred dollars a foot when we arrived, but in two months it had sprung up to eight hundred. The Ophir had been worth only a mere trifle a year gone by, and now it was selling at nearly four thousand dollars a foot. Not a mine could be named that had not experienced an astonishing advance in value within a short time. Everybody was talking about these marvels go where you would, you heard nothing else, from morning till far into the night. Tom so-and-so had sold out of the Amanda Smith for forty thousand dollars, hadn't a cent when he took up the ledge six months ago. John Jones had sold half his interest in the Bald Eagle and Mary for sixty-five thousand, gold coin, and gone to the States for his family. The widow Brewster had struck it rich, in the golden fleece and sold 10 feet for $18,000. Hadn't money enough to buy a crepe bonnet when Sing Sing Tommy killed her husband at Baldy Johnson's wake last spring. The last chance had found a clay casing and knew they were right on the ledge. Consequence, feet that went begging yesterday were worth a brick house apiece today.
0: There has been a lot of poetry lately, Some of the new collections include The Complete Public Domain Poems of Wallace Stevens, Volume One of Two Volumes, Short Poetry Collections, Number 39 and 40, The Rubaiyat of Omer Khayyam, and others.
3: Feminine by Henry Kyler Bunner, read by Leanne Howlett. She might have known it in the earlier spring that all my heart with vague desire was stirred. And ere the summer winds had taken wing, I told her, but she smiled and said no word. The autumn's eager hand his red-gold grasped, and she was silent, till from skies grown drear fell soft one fine first snowflake, and she clasped my neck and cried, Love, we have lost a year.
2: THE NIGHTS REMEMBER by Sarah Teasdale Read by Clarica The days remember and the nights remember The kingly hours that once you made so great. Deep in my heart they lie, hidden in their splendor, Buried like sovereigns in their robes of state. Let them not wake again, better to lie there Wrapped in memories, jeweled and arrayed, Many a ghostly king has waked from death's sleep and found his crown stolen, and his throne decayed.
0: Now on to new philosophy and religion, including Walking by Henry David Thoreau. There are also several biblical editions to the catalog. These include Daniel, King James Version, and also from the American Standard Edition, are several epistles, available in separate audiobooks. Also, Dialogues Concerning Natural Religion by David Hume.
10: This month brings to us a new reader, Sam Stinson, who has been reading the epistles in the New Testament. So far, this month, we have catalogued 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, Philemon, and the Epistle of Jude. The American Standard Version. The First Epistle of John is a book of the Bible, New Testament, the fourth of the Catholic or General Epistles. It was written in Ephesus about 90 to 110 A.D., apparently by the same author or authors who wrote the Gospel of John and the other two Epistles of John. Not actually a letter, it is a sermon written to counter the heresy that Jesus did not come in the flesh, but only as a spirit. It also defines how Christians are to discern true teachers, by their ethics, their proclamation of Jesus in the flesh, and by their love. Here is a sample.
13: Chapter 1 of the First Epistle of John the Apostle American Standard Version Recording by Sam Stinson That which was from the beginning, that which we have heard, that which we have seen with our eyes, that which we beheld in our hands handled concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare unto you the life, the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you also, that ye also may have fellowship with us. Yea, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write that our joy may be made full and this is the message which we have heard from him and announce unto you that god is light and in him is no darkness at all if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in the darkness we lie and do not the truth but if we walk in the light as he is in the light we have fellowship one with another and the blood of jesus his son cleanseth us from all sin if we say that we have no sin we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us.
7: Walking by Henry David Thoreau The LibriVox Recording of Walking Read by Chris Masterson Here is a paraphrase from the Library of Congress's Summary of Walking. Few writers of any era or discipline have exerted so great and lasting an influence on American culture's configuration of the man-nature relationship, as did Henry David Thoreau. His writings on the subject define both a literary form, the nature essay, and a seminal philosophical understanding of man. Walking, Is a prophetic evocation of the value of wildness and wilderness. It was, in effect, the seed of the conservation movement. The following is an example from this essay I rejoice that horses and steers have to be broken before they can be made the slaves of men, and that men themselves have some wild oats still left to sow before they become submissive members of society. Undoubtedly, all men are not equally fit subjects for civilization, and because the majority, like dogs and sheep, are tame by inherited disposition. This is no reason why the others should have their natures broken that they may be reduced to the same level. Men are in the main alike, but they were made several in order that they might be various. If a low use is to be served, One man will do nearly or quite as well as another, if a high one, individual excellence is to be regarded. Any man can stop a hole to keep the wind away, but no other man could serve so rare a use as the author of this illustration did. Confucius says, The skins of the tiger and the leopard, when they are tanned, are as the skins of the dog and the sheep tanned. But it is not the part of a true culture to tame tigers any more than it is to make sheep ferocious. And tanning their skins for shoes is not the best use to which they can be put.
0: Various plays, including Shakespeare's Monologues, Volume 3, LibriVox readers present the third collection of monologues from Shakespeare's plays, containing twenty parts from several plays by William Shakespeare. This is always an interesting listen. Here's a sample.
7: Oh, were that all? I think not on my father. From All's Well That Ends Well, Act One, Scene One, Spoken by Helena, Recorded by Vicky Soul. This is a LibriVox recording. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org.
14: Oh, were that all! I think not on my father. And these great tears grace his remembrance more than those I shed for him. What was he like? I have forgot him. My imagination carries no favour in't but Bertram's. I am undone. There is no living, none, if Bertram be away. all one that I should love a bright particular star, and think to wed it he is so above me. In his bright radiance and collateral light must I be comforted, not in his sphere. The ambition in my love thus plagues itself. The hind that would be mated by the lion must die for love. T'was pretty, though plague, to see him every hour, to sit and draw his arched brows, his hawking eye, his curls, in our heart's table, hearts too capable of every line and trick of his sweet favour. But now he's gone and my idolatrous fancy must sanctify his reliques who comes here one that goes with him i love him for his sake and yet i know him a notorious liar think him a great way fool, solely a coward yet those fixed evils sit so fit in him that they take place when virtue's steely bones look bleak i the cold wind withal full oft we see cold wisdom waiting on superfluous folly
7: End of. Oh, were well, that all? I think not. On my father, from all's well that ends well. Act One, Scene One. This recording is in the public domain.
0: And now, audiobooks in languages other than English.
15: Les Liaisons dangereuses by Pierre Choderlos de Laclos. Now available in French on LibriVox.org. The scheme of la marquise de Merteuil. Madame de Volanges marie sa fille. Et qui croyez-vous qu'elle ait choisi pour gendre Le vicomte de Gercourt. Vous avez été ennuyé cent fois, ainsi que moi, de l'importance que met Gercourt à la femme qu'il aura et de la sotte présomption qui lui fait croire qu'il évitera le sort inévitable. Prouvons-lui donc qu'il n'est qu'un sot. Valmont will help her in this manner.
12: On vous de Et conduisez Il serait honteux que nous ne fissions pas ce que nous voulons de deux enfants.
15: They will probably succeed, as Cecile Volanges writes to her sweetheart, Danceny.
12: Vous me demandez
3: ce que je fais. Je vous aime et je pleure.
15: And as he writes back,
3: c'est l'amour qui m'a conduit.
15: Begging Cecile to trust his friend.
3: Vous connaissez l'ami dont je vous parle. Il est celui de la femme que vous aimez le mieux. C'est le vicomte de Valmont.
15: Who has other plans? Vous connaissez la présidente de Tourvel. Voilà ce que j'attaque. Valmont success. La voilà donc vaincue, cette femme superbe qui avait osé croire qu'elle pourrait me résister. Oui, mon ami, elle est à moi. Entièrement à moi. La présidente de Tourvel, in despair.
8: Vous qui m'invitiez
0: à le fuir, aidez-moi à le combattre. Et vous qui plus indulgente me de diminuer mes peines venez donc auprès de moi
15: how does it all happen why does madame de rosemonde say après
1: ce que vous m'avez fait connaître monsieur il ne reste qu'a pleuré et
15: se come and listen to les liaisons dangereuses on LibriVox.org.
0: Thank you for listening. Hopefully you've enjoyed sitting out here with me. If you hadn't noticed, I at some point got out of my boat and sat on the sand. It's nice relaxing here under the early morning sun. As of today, LibriVox has over 800 audiobooks, available for free download 24 hours a day. As of today, there are 28 new audiobook releases for August 2007. To listen to more samples, visit the LibriVox website to get the links to all of our audio feeds. Every LibriVox recording contains the following statement. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. You are always welcome to visit the LibriVox site to download audiobooks and shorter works, to join the open forum, and yes, to volunteer. We have hundreds of friendly volunteers from all over the world, every continent, helping to produce free audiobooks, each volunteering in her own way. See you soon.